0: whether progressive emphasis on affirming churches is even sufficient. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? You know, if it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and I'm coming back after a few months off, doing pretty much callback episodes to past shows since December, maybe even late November, and I'm coming back at a very interesting time. From the very beginning, when I took the break, I didn't know whether Walk the Earth would come back first or Inappropriate Conversations, and I wasn't sure what the topic would be, but sometime in January, during this break that I had, I encountered an article that I want to share today, but before I get to the article and some of the problems related to trying to share this information, it comes at a very interesting time. It's probably a good point for me to stop and reflect and remember that when Walk the Earth began in 2013, A few months after my family and I left a church and began looking for a new church home. And looking in such a way that led us to think we probably would be changing denominations. And for me anyway, in the back of my head, knowing there was always a legitimate risk that the process of trying to find another church home would not be successful. Now, flash forward a couple of years, we were successful. We're part of an active, vibrant church and a church that I would describe as being affirming. And that's why I'm really wrestling with this question of getting to the point of saying, hey, this is a church where the energy is definitely right. I would have no problem inviting a gay, lesbian, or bisexual friend to this congregation to share a worship experience or just a time of fellowship with me. But now it seems like a good time to answer the question in a way that I'm sure I have before, but maybe not explicitly. Because when Walk the Earth began, I did not really intend for it to be a lot of finger-pointing. I was more than willing to not let the door hit my butt on the way out of the United Methodist Church. Remember, when Walk the Earth started, I wasn't 100% sure that we wouldn't be moving from one United Methodist Church congregation to another. What led us to walk, and led us to cast a very wide net in our search, wasn't necessarily denominational problems at the highest level. They were more issues inside that one local church congregation, which revealed some things at the district level which hinted that there might be broader problems, but the problems weren't about, let's say, the issues of the day. And yet, here we are in 2019, and it's probably time for me to deal with the issues of the day. So the backdrop, the the behind-the-scenes, the noise, if you will, that could, if I let it overwhelm the signal I'm trying to send today, is that this recording is being made after the United Methodist Church's General Conference in St. Louis in 2019, where they were trying to decide what the go-forward path was for them as a denomination, and they chose what they're calling the traditional path, essentially meaning that they've seriously qualified any role, or in the minds of some people, legitimately denied roles for gay and lesbian people inside that denomination. It's certainly going to vary one congregation to the next, But when you look all the way to the top and leverage some of the advantages of being part of an ecclesiastical structure like the United Methodist Church, you can always try to course correct something going wrong inside your local church by pointing upward and saying, hey, this is what the denomination in totality stands for. But what if the denomination in totality now stands for something which is, in the minds of many believers, certainly in the minds of me if I were still participating in that denomination, a problem in and of itself One other element of backdrop for this would be the controversy, for want of a better word, between uh, Ellen Page and Chris Pratt. Now, I say controversy because it doesn't appear to me to be a direct conflict. But at the same time that I was looking at these questions of what it means to be affirming and whether this concept of affirming church is even sufficient, early February, news like this began to break. I'm going to quote the Huffington Post. In their entry from February 8th, 2019, called Ellen Page Calls Out Chris Pratt for Supporting quote Infamously Anti-LGBTQ Church. Young, hip, evangelical churches like Zoe and Hillsong have attracted a slew of celebrity followers while being privately unsupportive of same-sex marriage. The story goes on to say that actress and activist Ellen Page is calling out fellow celebrity Chris Pratt for attending an infamously anti anti-gay church. Page pointed out that Pratt, who spoke about his church on the late show Thursday night, this was early February, didn't mention that it doesn't appear to be affirming of queer relationships. Pratt and a number of other Christian celebrities have become closely associated with hip youth oriented evangelical churches like Hillsong, a mega church with locations around the world and Zoe church, a newer Los Angeles based church that was modeled after Hillsong and So Pratt, who attends Zoe, has said very positive things about his church, and I think Paige is calling him out for not dealing with the other side of the coin. Well, members of United Methodist Church congregations have not had the luxury of not dealing with the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin has been thrust not just into their faces, but into the the newsrooms all over the world as a fairly large, second-largest mainline Christian denomination, Had an argument with itself about what to do with its relationship with gay and lesbian people and words that have historically been written and quoted from the United Methodist Church's book of discipline. So I'm going to set those issues aside for now and just sort of call them out as kind of a backdrop for the question that I want to raise because the question I want to raise is completely different. And I wasn't gearing up to criticize the United Methodist Church had they gone the completely opposite direction and reached some level of full affirming, if there is such a thing. No, what happened to me was I encountered an article online that kind of raised the question of whether full affirming is going to make the kind of difference. I guess if you were going to have an ends versus means approach, you might be disappointed by the end result of full affirming. I tend to function as often with a means-first with a means first approach, meaning if it's the right thing to do, just do it. And so I'm going to share a positive perspective, and I'm going to do my best to share the nuts and bolts of a negative perspective, because I want that negative perspective to have a lot of voice. Now, there is a major problem in that I'm not able to just go back to the original website where I found this and reproduce and selectively quote from the article. I don't know, in other words, why the article that I wanted to refer to has disappeared, but it has. And that's disappointing. It was something called Bookish Bear Blog, and the article was the article that I'm going to describe as being the negative side of the story was seven reasons why LGBTQ plus people don't want to go to your LGBTQ plus inclusive church. I don't have any reason to believe that this argument from June eleventh, two 2018 was retracted because the author has had second thoughts. The entire blog right now is just down and unavailable. I do know that this particular blog article was only taking comments for two or three days because what you think might have happened did happen. Whatever the equivalent of mansplaining is in this situation was going on to such a degree in both volume and pungency that comments were quickly cut off. And again, it's not just this one article that is now gone. It's the whole blog, as far as I can tell. I wrote about this on the Facebook page for Walk the Earth because it really kind of took me by surprise, I guess. Here's what I wrote just a couple of weeks ago. One of my online concerns has always been what I might call post-ghosting. It seems to have happened to me as a key article I wanted to mention in the next Walk the Earth podcast, this one, has totally dropped off the web. I have my notes. It's a shame to lose the reference, though, if only because it makes it impossible to give the original author his due. I remember he was a male. I could speculate that his first name was Nathan, but I might be wrong, and I have no shot of remembering the rest. And I'm not finding attribution online. So, I don't know what to do. I don't want to go too far down this line because maybe the original author did decide that he wanted not just this post but his blog gone because he didn't want to take credit. But I can't help him on avoiding the conversation. I'll do what I can to give credit where credit is due, but the bottom line is there's going to be a walk-the-earth perspective on this question where it really is the heart of the question of this week's episode, in fact, whether progressive emphasis on affirming churches is even sufficient. What if we achieve that goal perfectly? What if we become the perfect, affirming congregation? And what if nobody cares? So first off, let me define some terms. I found an article online from a group called Ambassadors and Bridge Builders International. The author of this is an Australian pastor, I believe. His name is uh, Anthony Venn Brown. His bio describes him as one of Australia's foremost commentators on faith and sexuality His best-selling autobiography, A Life of Unlearning, A Preacher's Struggle with His Homosexuality, Church, and Faith, details his journey from being one of the first in the world to experience religious gay conversion therapy, becoming a married, high-profile preacher in Australia's growing megachurches, such as Hillsong, to living as an openly gay man, and he's one of the founders of an organization called Freedom to Be, And I found an article from him on this website at abbi.org.au. It was originally, I believe, from March 2017, but it's just as relevant today. What caught my eye about it was a chart. And I may link to a couple of these things when I post the show. Again, unfortunately, I can't link to everything that I want to link to, but this one is still available. And the chart basically goes from left to right, showing what it calls the Church on a Journey... From anti-gay, we don't want you here, you're going to hell. To welcoming, come in, sit down, and listen. If you let God change you, then you can go to heaven. To accepting, so leaving welcoming, going to accepting. Come and stay, but you must be celibate, i.e. never fall in love, or never have a relationship, or never act on your feelings. I think you'll get to heaven, but I'm a little confused about grace and works. To affirming. And affirming is described here as, you and your partner are welcome here, be a part of our community. What gifts do you bring to serve God and our church? The kingdom of God is among us. What have you done to the least of these you have done to me? So I would describe myself as being in a strongly affirming mindset. But even this article, which is not setting out to convict in the same way the seven reasons why article I'm going to quote later does, has some really hard questions Uh, under this uh, paragraph of two things I have learned over the years from Vin Brown. One, this journey will be one of a number of years for a church. No one moves from anti-gay to LGBT affirming overnight. This is even more true for a church or a denomination than it is for an individual. And number two, the journey cannot be taken without involvement with LGBT people. No conversation about us without us. Now, obviously, those who've listened to Walk the Earth know this. If I'm quoting somebody and using us, I'm, you know, an outsider to that us. I'm not speaking as an LGBT person, but I hope I'm speaking as an ally. And that six-word sentence speaks volumes. No conversation about us without us. And I think that kind of cuts a little bit to the core of my struggles. I've been asked in the past, and I'm still very open to the idea of being the kind of person who helps facilitate and or lead, co-lead anyway, Sunday school or adult advanced continuing education kind of coursework on questions of, of gays, lesbians, the Bible, the church, all that sort of stuff. But I've never really been given the opportunity in any of the churches that I've been a part of to do so Side by side with someone who is a gay Christian. And that's the right way to do it. He has some uh, thoughts, Vin Brown, at the end of his article, which I think are really, really interesting in terms of saying, quoting him, it's time for the church to invite LGBT people into the conversation. For some, this is a conversation about their thoughts and beliefs. But for us, it is about who we are. You can ask questions. And then his list of questions, again, I, think I found them very interesting. What was it like for you to sit in church and hear the word abomination used to describe you? What was it like to get to the point of accepting that you were gay and coming out, knowing you might be rejected by those you love and the church and God you served? How did you find resolution of your Christian beliefs and your sexuality? If you did, of course, begging the question, but that's where Ben Brown is coming from. There are more questions on his article online. And those are the right kinds of questions to be asking. But one of the problems that I see here in overcoming the burden of no conversation about us without us is what if the us, in this case being the LGBTQIA community, maybe they're not all that interested in having the conversation either. And maybe that's legitimate and fair pushback. So when I went looking for this article again to try to recreate it, because... Believe me, I would have quoted directly from it. It was well-written. Even at its length, it was well-written and engaging through and through. The best I could find was, I think, probably some sort of maybe a Reddit post where somebody had pasted a significant portion of it. And ironically, without being able to give attribution, because this post also didn't give attribution, um, I think I'm going to have to do my bet. Well, I was going to quote selectively, but maybe now I'll quote 100% of what's been provided to me, which it isn't much, but it's all I've got. So this is the article that I can't find, that I wish I could, and that's going to drive the way I answer this question today. So your church is LGBTQ affirming. Congratulations. Your denomination has most likely endured years of internal strife and division and come out on the side of an inclusivity. This isn't something to be taken for granted. Entire denominations have split over this question. And still others seem not at all willing to budge on their centuries worth of LGBT intolerance. Yet, as you go to church week after week, you ask your gay or trans friends to join you and you receive a bewildering response. They're just not interested. So let's start with listing the reasons why LGBTQ plus individuals may not want to go to your church at all. This isn't to tell you in every case what to do about it. But to get you to understand and think a little deeper about the perspective of queer people in the face of religion, Christianity in particular. The more you understand the position, the more dialogue you can foster with us. And then quickly an index of the reasons with lots of uh, ellipses indicating that things have skipped around a little bit. So I don't have the detail that I so wanted to share, but here are the seven reasons... And then I'm going to turn it into seven slightly differently worded reasons to walk me through my thought process on the other side of the fence as a Christian man playing a somewhat of a leadership role in an affirming church. But for now, here are the seven reasons from this article entitled seven reasons why LGBTQ plus people don't want to go to your inclusive church. Number one, in general, people aren't going to church anymore. Number two, As inclusive as yours may be, churches are overwhelmingly cisgender, heterosexual spaces. Number three. Many LGBTQ plus persons have experienced religious trauma, some of it profound. Number four. Religious belief in general fundamentally disrupts the ways that many LGBTQ persons have learned to find meaning in their lives. Number five. Church institutions tend to submit everything and everybody to the pastoral gaze. Number six, churches tend to micromanage even healthy sexual expressions. And number seven, your church isn't as LGBTQ plus inclusive as it thinks it is. There is much more to the link. This is the words of the person on uh, on Reddit, I think. There's much more to the link that is allowed to be posted here, and I think it touches on issues that I personally have never seen discussed here or in any other religious group. As someone who is a member of the LGBT community, this is the poster of this abbreviated version of the article. Many of the issues the author points out are spot on. And while I am an atheist and would not go to church for many reasons, there are instances where friends or family have encouraged me to tag along for one reason or another and use the, but they're gay friendly... As a hook to get me to go. I feel that the author verbalized this so much better than what I ever could, beyond, hey, you know, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, because it's so much more than that. I can sit through a prayer or a Bible verse as well as anyone. It's more than that. Just because you hang a rainbow flag doesn't mean that the chapel behind that space is welcoming and inclusive to the community. Many times it feels like we're being thrown piecemeal offerings of a take this, we tolerate you, now shut up and be happy. We're not calling you dirty sinners and throwing stones at you. What more do you want? You already have a seat at the table. But more profoundly, the structure of our society is changing before our eyes. Churches used to anchor communities, and were a space where people met outside the routine of daily commercial life. Parishes were determined by geography. Protestant churches were determined by denominational affiliation. Nowadays, people form their communities through other means. People develop their values more privately. People no longer go to church out of a social commitment, but out of a personal, and some would argue, a consumptive one. People go to churches where they feel like they're being fed. Church is a commodity, and an optional one at that. So, I'm anonymously quoting somebody on an online forum who was anonymously quoting this author of the original blog post, because we just don't have any choice. And I think the questions being raised here are substantial. I took a journey from, say, January to the end of February, when I was preparing for this particular Walk the Earth question, of kind of turning uh, the, the same perspective kind of from the other direction and say, okay, if I'm trying to be a gatekeeper, if I'm trying to build a bridge, and if I'm committed to the idea that I need to be patient and understanding that When you build a bridge, you tend to be misunderstood by both sides. What can I do to listen twice or more than twice as often as I talk and bring this information in, internalize it, learn from it and understand it, and then feed it back to say, hey, what what is the goal of being an affirming congregation? If we go back to this article that was published from the Australian author, even if you had made a journey – All the way from anti-gay to welcoming to accepting to landing and affirming. What was the point in getting to affirming? Because I think probably the number one thing I could say from walking the earth. From what might have been the perspective of the church we left on their best day. Holding people in unconditional positive regard. And even though I did deal face-to-face several times with many people who were definitely anti-gay. And I've not only read... Social media posts from people from the church we left who were connected with, including people that we left on good terms and stayed in touch with as they journeyed to a more healthy congregation themselves, still might very accurately be described as no better than begrudgingly welcoming. Over on the left side of this chart, where anti-gay and welcoming are both problematically obsessed with heaven and hell, and not at all interested in the fact that Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. It's here now, and what are you going to do about it? But if the point of trying to be an affirming congregation is to grow membership roles and increase giving and raise money, it's kind of deeply offensive. If the goal is instead to right a lot of wrongs and to recreate community in a new model, we may be farther away from achieving that than we know. And that's where this question really hit home for me. Let me go back to the original seven posts, the seven reasons why again. I'll summarize very quickly, and then I'll show you what I turned those into to help me answer this question. People aren't going to church. Um, Churches are overwhelmingly heterosexual spaces. People have experienced religious trauma, and you can't just wipe that away or pretend it didn't happen. Religious belief disrupts the way that many gay and lesbian people have learned to find meaning in their lives. Uh, The church... Institutions tend to submit everything to this this unwritten rule of pastoral authority, and the, this even when pastors don't intend to, there's this presumed disapproving look, uh, this pastoral gaze as it's described. Churches micromanage even healthy sexual expressions in extremely problematic ways, that you could be married to one woman your entire life and still have people questioning in subtle ways whether or not your relationship is right with God or not. Um, so... That happens to heterosexual married couples. Uh, Lord knows how that would play out to a singles culture in general and a singles gay culture in particular. And then finally, the the really blunt instrument is your your, your church isn't as inclusive as it thinks it is. Period. I didn't really know what to do with that in terms of turning that directly into something else that I could use. So I thought in terms of... How could this be communicated to any congregation? Not really thinking of mine right now, because mine, I think, has got a few things here inherently right. And anybody who's listened to Walk the Earth and kind of heard my questions early on and my answers later, I think you get a sense of maybe I'm I'm in a good place. But I think any church should be thinking about the questions that were raised in that article. And maybe the right way to turn this um, inwardly toward the church is, is to ask it this way. If the call is coming from inside the house and if I'm the one making the call, these are the seven points I might raise. Point number one. We're not looking for just a new shingle here. A new color of paint. Number two. We tend to be defensive of the past rather than learning from it. Number three. Always looking for a new set of rules. Number four. The line between defending people versus defending policy. Number five. Pointlessly gendered. This was worded so well in the original article, and I can't find anybody who's quoted it, but that's point number five. Number six, rejecting the shoes we are called to walk at least a mile in. And number seven, narrow view of community, thereby we miss other forms of community. And these are the things which I think kind of back up the argument made in the original article. As I walk my way through these points, as I've seen them in various different congregations, including my own, my own current congregation from time to time, where does the church fall short? And I think the underlying problem is you're always going to fall short if your goal is something numeric, you know, something you can count, membership, attendance, giving. You're always going to fall short. And the church we left behind was very obsessed. Even at the denominational level, the notion was, if you got a few things right in terms of rethinking church, was what they were calling it at the time, the result of rethinking church was going to be more members, more attendance from those members, more giving from those members. And it always put me just a little bit off, because I thought maybe we should just be getting ourselves right in right community with God, in the sense of what Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, called the Great Judgment, in the sense of saying that we are going to find Jesus wherever he may be, and Jesus may well be in the single mother who is working two jobs just to put food on the table and doesn't have time to come to committee meetings and certainly doesn't have money to help the church do anything, pay for programs, build a building, add a salary, whatever. And if you're deciding whether to minister to the needs of that individual based on those numeric concerns— then I should stop right here, game over, we've already lost, and the answer to the question is not going to be a palatable one, because then your progressive emphasis on being an affirming church is insufficient because it's disingenuine. It's not really an emphasis on being affirming at all, it's an emphasis on, well, adding to the numbers. But, looking more from a perspective of unconditional positive regard, which I want to do, And I think it's a fair thing for me to do in this situation, because my situation is now not like the United Methodist Church. I'm in a different group altogether, and I'm 100% confident that the leadership of this church, both lay leadership and pastoral leadership, doesn't make this mistake. This interest in, in being a truly affirming church is genuine and real. But if I have doubts, if I have worries those worries are in whether we fully understand the distance here it's possible that a couple of the pastors i'm working with are that sharp and they do totally understand the distance and the journey and part of the reason that they don't want to talk to you know people maybe maybe they talk to me but maybe not beyond me maybe not have a broad con- congregational conversation along these lines is because it can be very disconcerting it's a long road as the uh, the pastor, Vin Brown, said in the article I shared from Australia, from my perspective, it's it's a good idea to understand how arduous the task may be and to have a very good perspective about where the twists and turns are likely to come. So I'm going to go there because I am now no longer convinced that becoming an affirming church is in and of itself a goal. If it's, if it's truly a milestone, if that will on its own even be sufficient. Meaning that the answer to the question is, yeah, no, I don't think that progressive churches who emphasize being affirming is even remotely sufficient. That said, it's better than all the alternatives, and it may be a necessary step along the way. So what are the obstacles? What are the points that need to be considered? For some, and this was true of the church we left behind in a big way, their notion was that you just need to put the hours that the you know worship services are going to be on a brightly shining marquee outside in front of the building, and then you know people who deserve to be in fellowship with us will come, and people who don't, don't, and that's just perfectly fine. That they would rather have uh, a small and dwindling congregation of people that they were very committed to than to do anything that was actually going to invite strangers in. And that was a problem. And the best you that I could have hoped for at that church is what I would describe as a brand new shingle and a new coat of paint. The underlying structural issues were ultimately going to be the same. And the issue was that that notion in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is basically sending people out. Go and make disciples, is what Jesus is saying. And that's a very different attitude than put up your hours of operation, put up your office hours, and only hope, only help the students who come to your office. This is more about interacting and finding out how people are doing and um, offering to, you know, read their term paper that they turned in a month ago and see if there's a, if any way you can help them study for the midterm. It's more outreach. It's more outgoing than that. And that's obviously the exact opposite of saying, well, we're just going to stick a rainbow flag in the marquee, you know, kind of in the, uh, in the flower bed where our big sign is out front. And that's all you got to do. Just, just use the appropriate symbols. So no, that's, that's one point. The other one is being defensive of the past rather than learning from it. This list of questions raises some pretty hard things, not the least of which is, is people who have suffered, you know, profound trauma at the hands of the church and I think it's really necessary that, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who's had traumatic experiences, who has been victimized, who has been shunned and bullied, that it becomes even more important to use the two ears and the one mouth in proper proportion and do way more listening and far less speaking and that the speaking can be far more sympathetic and far less argumentative. But you hear a lot of folks who get very defensive when you begin to criticize the church in general or historic interpretations of Scripture, or even what's going on just in the last couple of weeks within a major congregation like the United Methodist Church. I mean, you think about the news of the day. You've got a Southern Baptist Convention that is just now coming to terms with the fact that it might have a sexual abuse scandal uh, related to pedophilia, even, at the highest levels of its organization that would rival the scandal at least comparably, to the Roman Catholic Church. So you've got sexual abuse of children in the Roman Catholic Church, now in the Southern Baptist Convention, and here the United Methodist Church has had a chance to kind of stake a different path and have chosen to circle the wagons and put a Do Not Disturb sign up. And so uh, that defensiveness, I think, is so obvious it doesn't need much more explanation. These two, uh, number two and number three on my list, are somewhat related, so I'll call them out as such, because... One of the things that happens when you get defensive of the past is you begin looking for a new set of rules. Um, I've spent a big chunk of this week uh, online dealing with, not really interacting as much as you'd think, but dealing with the fallout of a very simple tweet I put up, for want of a better word. I mean, I just, I kind of made a statement. It's the only real statement I've made on Twitter directly addressing friends and family members who are part of the United Methodist Church today. And some of the folks that we walked away from the United Methodist Church with who walked into even less affirming situations, further away from a quasi-welcoming congregation we left to an anti-gay congregation now. Anytime you're standing in front of a congregation of people saying that you will allow gay people to visit your church but they can never be members, you pretty much get the idea. I just said this, I wonder if there's going to be a day when I can introduce my religious right UMC friends and acquaintances to Jesus of Nazareth. They will be amazed, some to the point of stubborn doubt, by his revolutionary disregard for tradition, his radical inclusiveness, and the meaning of love. And yeah, those are hard words. I'm implying that there's a lot of people that I've worshipped with in the past who need to be introduced to Jesus of Nazareth because their their actions, not least which their actions politically, seem to suggest that they have no idea who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. And I don't see any reason to look at what the United Methodist Church has just experienced in their general conference this year as being anything less than more the same, that there's in some ways sort of a crisis happening here. And of course, I've gotten from that all the pushback that you might imagine, and people quoting clobber verses and misinterpreting scripture and all that sort of noise and to me what it comes down to is that if you can get some of these people to give up their reliant their quasi-orthodox jewish reliance on the law that they don't seem to have any understanding of well what what i spent the month of january on the inappropriate conversations podcast doing playing back in chunks inappropriate conversations number 150 which directly and indirectly deals with the fact that even Paul is very quick to acknowledge that the law is gone, that Jesus fulfilled the law, but they're going to be so quick the day they acknowledge that okay, that these Leviticus quotes I've been lobbing at people with somewhat hateful, or at the very least appearing hateful, well those kind of have to go, right? Because Jesus has told us we need to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, which is our responsibility and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and it's kind of hard to do that if we have a two- or three-tiered view of who's worthy and who's not. And, of course, Jesus clears up the question of worthiness in that passage of the Great Judgment by even saying that, hey, whoever you think is the least is me, Jesus said, God incarnate. And so what you have is Jesus telling us to set aside that old set of rules with a seemingly, on their side, irresistible desire to replace it with a new set of rules, and often that new set of rules looks a lot like the old set, just repackaged. So there's that problem. Um, just kind of trying to deal, trying to deal with the heart of a congregation in such a way that it's clear that we've made a commitment to remain in love with the Lord, not the law, and all that that implies, and all that that entails. And I think that leads me to the next point, which was that fine line between defending people versus defending policy. If I were to try to describe progressive and non-progressive people on one single element, one test that could give you the answer to is this person truly progressive or not, it is probably right there. If your worldview leads you to defend people, regardless what tradition or dogma or even scripture has to say about it, you're being progressive. If your worldview leads you to find and protect and defend some sort of policy, again, that might be scripture or dogma or just church tradition or the way we've always done things around here. It could be something as simple as inertia. But whatever it is, if it's defending a policy, then you are not progressive. And I'm quite sure that every church that considers itself to be progressive is doing this multi-year wrestling match that Venn Brown described in his article. So... To me, this played out in a really interesting way. In a conversation I had with some with a relative online, in the aftermath of what happened in the United Methodist Church, um, this person basically said, hey, I'm genuinely looking for guidance. Not picking a fight, not going to care if you disagree with anything else he has to say. He and I, by the way, have a very similar impression of the walk we need to be doing and that the United Methodist Church is diverting from the path that they need to be on. But he asked the question of whether or not denominations even have a role to play, whether they're even useful. And because it wasn't a post on inappropriate conversations, wasn't even a post on my wall, because I can't guarantee that these words will be remembered. There's always the point that, you know, my wall, my rules. At some point, my cousin could delete the post altogether and the concept could disappear. So when I was trying to make sure I was communicating effectively, that I was using, you know, well, first off, real words (laughs) and spelling them right. I did some of this in word and I saved it there. So I think I'll just share some of what I responded. Because I think it cuts to the heart of this sort of people versus policy question. Because when you think about it, that really is where the rubber meets the road here. My, I've had people in my world that grieve me deeply because I care deeply about them. And I know that they certainly intend to be loving people. But their desire to defend one narrow interpretation of a couple of sets of scripture would lead them to do monstrous things, perhaps. Turn the other cheek while kids are ripped from their parents at the border, for example. I wish that was a hypothetical. I'm afraid that it's not. But you get the idea. I mean, you can say you're trying to love your neighbor as yourself, but not if you are willing to make your neighbor suffer because it's more important for you to defend, you know, tradition or dogma or scripture. Here's what I wrote to my, to my cousin. I'm tempted to say that God doesn't care about denominations either way. Well, my perspective tends to fall in the line of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is criticizing people for presuming that they're following Paul or Peter or Apollos and dividing into factions, even at that very early stage of the church. When Paul was trying to drive their attention to the fact that we're following Christ, not any of his apostles or teachers. But... Even though I'll put that out there to say, if forced to give you an answer, that's kind of my perspective that denominations are ultimately more likely to be a bad thing, as Paul pointed out to the church in Corinth. I also know that it was more about Paul speaking on behalf of apostles who wanted to keep the focus on Jesus. So That's kind of I started with that. And then I said, look, I look at it like the space Jesus created in Mark chapter nine, verse 40, and in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. In one passage, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. And in the second passage, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Well, is this some kind of a mistake? Is it a proof that the Bible's a flawed document? I tend to think of it somewhere more along the lines that something zen is going on here. That Jesus was, or the writers of the Gospels, were creating space. That space between what it means to say, whoever is not against us is for us, and saying, whoever is not with me is against me. If denominations are aggressive about closing that space right now, then I'd say they disappoint God. If, on the other hand, they open up space by broadening options at a macro level, then they serve a useful purpose. To those not quite parallel passages, it is noteworthy that Jesus is forcing his followers in the first story to keep an open mind to the th- to the good things that someone else may be doing in his name. If you if we think of driving out demons in your name as a form of healing, then Jesus is defending those good Samaritans, even if they're outcasts. The, the context of the passage was, these people aren't part of our inner circle. They're not here following you directly, Jesus, but they're doing things in your name. They're sharing your message. They're sharing your message outside the circle. Is that okay? And Jesus says, hey, it's fine, for two reasons. First off, they're not against us, so we can assume they're for us. And second off, they're trying to take care of people. In the second story, where Jesus is closing down any permissiveness instead... The, if you're not with me, you're against me, kind of logic. Well, the dynamic there was one of hatred and exclusion. The Pharisees had just accused Jesus of being demonic by breaking the law and shunning tradition because he was restoring sight and speech to a demon-possessed man and, who knows, probably even doing it on the Sabbath. What is parallel between these two passages, even though they seem contradictory, again, in a Zen kind of a way, is that... They're putting Jesus is putting people ahead of dogma, consistently, and as in order for his church to follow, he's putting people ahead of dogma. The difference is being open to claiming Jesus as an outsider, while being closed to those who would use fundamentalism to marginalize others. Now, all denominations are filled with fallible human beings, and they are a mixture of both of these problems, but not all of them are the same mixture. United Methodist Church had an opportunity last month to evaluate its mix and choose to side more on a policy of protecting people instead of protecting policy, and they went in the opposite direction. For me, the fifth of my points is one of the biggest. I describe it as pointlessly gendered. And to answer this question in the right way, to kind of go back to the original Walk the Earth question and focus... We're looking at LGBTQ people here and their perspective of a church. And what does it mean to be invited into a church community? And let's say that for years now, it's a a healthy church. It's so far away from any sort of anti-gay past or merely welcoming journey. And it's fully affirming and has been. Are there other barriers? I talked about this in Inappropriate Conversations number 44. Um, I haven't listened to that in years, but... It occurs to me that that's where I would have first brought it up. The question of Carl Jung and his theories of animus and anima, the phenomenology of the self, as I've heard it described, and the notion that every male person has a female soul to some degree, and every female person has a male soul—that sort of con- these concepts in the in the theories of Carl Jung. But one of the places where I think Jung's theories fall completely down. And I haven't done anything to improve or advance them myself, so I'm not pointing fingers, but what is the opposite sex in this Jungian sense for someone who's gay? Is the opposite sex the people you're attracted to, in which case, same gender? Or is the opposite sex the opposite gender anyway? I think what I'm doing is muddying the waters here on purpose a little bit, just to sort of call out that pointlessly gendering is a problem. And I will say that, you know, I've mentioned a couple times on on the shows that I'm no longer engaging in a Christian outreach ministry that was deeply meaningful to me at the time I participated. And that I spent many times um, as uh, leaders of a team, uh, giving talks, speeches, sitting at tables, praying for people in the chapel, actively engaged in that ministry. And one of the things that always put me off about it And one of the things that made it easy for me to walk away when they began to get more obsessed about Barack Obama being president than things that the church should have been obsessed about, one of the things was that it was pointlessly gendered. Now, I say pointlessly. Maybe the weekend of husbands and the weekend of wives being separated from each other uh, bore good fruit. Maybe there are certain things that you can engage a man-to-man conversation about in a church setting that wouldn't work if the wife was sitting at... You know, two tables over. Yeah, maybe. But generally speaking, I find churches to be gendered for the sake of gendering themselves. And I have always checked out. I mean, I think if you look at my history of church participation, if such a record were available, you would find that where I've engaged in Bible study, they have been completely open. They've been uh, across genders, across age groups, across ethnicities, across everything as much as humanly possible. And when a Bible study group that I'm participating in decides that for the next uh, series we're going to do, for the next you know, the next time we get together, we're going to divide up male and female, I tend to be out at that point. If I have attended a men's Bible study at any point in time with anybody who's listening to this show and knows me well, it was an act of grace on my part. I wasn't happy about it. And that's just kind of the way I've lived my life, being someone who's, Uh, So freely maintain friendships across gender lines, platonic friendships across gender lines. Who's had religious experience that I would associate with, uh, spiritual direction in the area of kind of crossing those gender lines from the perspective of friendship. I find gendering for the sake of gendering to be problematic for my own reasons. But then add to this the wrinkle of, what if you were a gay man and some of your best friends are women? And there's reasons why that might make sense that straight women and gay men would have a lot in common with each other. Anytime you're going to be participating in as a guest or a relatively new member in a church activity where people will be frowning upon that relationship as if that's somehow dangerously risky and you're leading somebody on and is somebody going to be tempted to sexual sin or are they willing to tolerate your relationship because they don't really believe there is such a thing as gay and they hope that... Um, a little adultery might fix you or something like that. I mean, all these things are kind of cut to the, cut to the core of the problem of not bothering to understand what friendship relationships are like for gay and lesbian people and the even more complex gender dynamic for trans people and having no spot for those folks. I mean, I believe in the original list and all I really have is the, the list of seven, mind you, but the original list talks about Um, As inclusive as yours may be, churches are overwhelmingly cisgendered, heterosexual spaces. And to the extent that they're cisgender and heterosexual, and then kind of divide themselves on gender lines for reasons that don't seem necessarily to be all that compelling, it quickly becomes problematic. And I can guarantee that if gendering for the sake of gendering is problematic for me, I guarantee it's going to be problematic for most people who are Gay, lesbian, bi, or trans, you know, queerness in general blurs these lines. And you're in in essence saying that for no really good reason as a church, we're going to try to force you into the men's Sunday school or the women's Sunday school. And for some folks, that decision is nowhere near as obvious as it seems. Therefore, you're pulling people out of the script, I guess, is the way I would word it. And I would say that with some authority, because I know that I personally being a straight heterosexual male, had been pulled out of the script by this same sword of pointless gendering. Number six on my list, uh, if we're keeping score, is rejecting the shoes we are called to walk at least a mile in. The last podcast I shared from Inappropriate Conversations was to Talk Back to Jesus' Quote Bubble, which was basically me sharing the Sermon on the Mount in Modern English Translations, And among the things in the Sermon on the Mount are Jesus talking about, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. If someone asks for a coat, give them your shirt too. I mean, Jesus is talking about being willing to take on the burden of others, or in this example, to simply have an open-minded experience of what they are going through. But so often, homophobia is the word for it. Homophobia leads people to be so afraid of what it might mean to go to a pride event with this new ven- this new member of the church or this new, you know, regular visitor to your church because well what what does it say about me if i go to that event? You know, what are people going to think? What is what are my parents going to think? You know, all that sort of stuff, right? And what it leads to is people rejecting the shoes that Jesus has asked us to walk a mile. In fact, not just one mile. Walk the second mile. That's a cliché we get straight out of the sermon on the mount in the Bible. Walk the second mile there's too many people who won't even walk the first mile because there's no way they're going to be seen wearing those heels. And I say this, of course, you know, in a non-literal way, hypothetically. But even sitting down and asking the kinds of questions that Ven Brown mentioned earlier, hey, have you ever been called an abomination in the church? How did you deal with that? Were you going to a church on a regular basis as a gay Christian the Sunday or two after The Supreme Court's gay marriage ruling in 2015. What happened on those Sundays? How did it make you feel? That is what I mean by walking a mile in those shoes. And Jesus says we ought to be walking too. Finally, the last of my seven points, mirroring the article that I saw online a couple of months ago, is, in fact, mirroring it almost completely, is this notion of a narrow view of community. We miss the other forms of community that exist, because too often for church people, our view of community is the church. The question is originally posed, read like, read like this. Your church isn't as LGBTQ plus inclusive as it thinks it is. But the guts of that paragraph, as I recall it, was that you're not as essential as you think you are. Your Christian exceptionalism is perhaps a problem. If you've led yourself to believe that in the 1950s and 60s, when people had to go to church, because there were blue laws and there was nothing else you really could do, and television during that hour was either televised church services or lame political shows, you didn't have 24-hour sports center or even 24-hour news channels at that time, and going to church was almost a self-defense mechanism even out of boredom for somebody who felt that the church had no place for them and they really didn't belong. Church was where community was done back then. When I was an active member of a church youth group, it would have been the 70s, and it was kind of the same thing. There was still talk about the good old days when the when the youth group was even bigger, and a lot of people blamed um, drug culture and hippies and rock and roll and other things on the fact that it diminished somewhat. But the youth group was still far more heavily populated back in the 70s and early 80s than it is today. The reality is people have not gone without any form of community because the only form of community is the church. There are other forms of community out there. And now the church needs to recognize the fact that you're not asking for fidelity from a new member in the same way. You're not just getting your house cleaned up because you're expecting somebody to move in with you and stay there all the time. We have forced so many people in our lives and in our worlds to find community elsewhere to find community in places like online groups and forums and Facebook groups and other sorts of meetup groups, the bar culture, for one of another thing. I mean, if you aren't welcome in the church because you're gay, you're probably welcome in some of those bars because you're gay. And you might have to figure out, well, which bars am I safe in and which bars am I not safe in? But if you find a bar you're safe in, odds are you're going to form a community there. And we saw this with the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando a few years ago. To me, that was every, every bit as toxic as an attack on a church would have been because you were going into a place of safety where community had developed. It wasn't just a place to drink and dance. It wasn't just a bar. There was more to it than that. And I think too often, you know, people who want to be progressive and perhaps to one degree or another are succeeding in being progressive kind of miss this, that there is no reason to be defensive of the past because we're not going back there. And there's no point in trying to replace an old outdated set of rules with a new set of rules because the problem was having a set of rules. Jesus wanted us to be in league with people. We're supposed to love God in our neighbor, not love God in the Ten Commandments or any other set of rules you can name. So the degree that we've maybe gotten past those hurdles and we've uh, welcomed people in, we've gendered ourselves in such a way that if a gay man wants to be in fellowship with his female straight woman friend he might not be able to do it inside your church because your church might have some sort of problem with that and if that problem isn't stated explicitly it might be stated in more subtle ways through the the pastoral gaze of disapproval or questioning or curiosity but curiosity that has a little bit of judgment kind of maybe fairly or unfairly presumed to be behind it and so you welcome people in and you push them right back out through the other side of the, of the church in one door and out the other because of things like being, you know, pointlessly gendered or unwilling to truly listen, to listen not just actively, but almost listen experientially. And I'm not saying you've got to go gay to understand, but you've got to at least put yourself in that other person's shoes fully enough to say, Hey, Here's the place where I know I will be never, I will never be able to understand. And that's okay because I'm different, right? But I'm going to get as close to the line of what I can and can't understand as humanly possible. And if you're not willing to get close to that line, that's the other problem. What I'm saying here in point number seven though, with this problem of the narrow view of community is that it's arrogant and wrong for us to assume that if people have not found the kind of fellowship that heterosexual married couples have found historically and may still find inside the church that doesn't mean we should be pitting them because they don't have any community. I'm quite sure there is another community and I'm quite sure that the church is going to be unsuccessful in fully replacing that other community and I would even suggest that there's probably no point in attempting to replace that other community. That this question cannot be answered with an either or paradigm. It is probably best answered with a both-and paradigm, making a complex and meaningful Venn diagram where we're not just one or the other. Many of us are truly both. And if some people that I'm worshiping with on a regular basis are part of communities that I could never genuinely be a part of or understand, that's not a curse, it's a blessing. And the fact that we don't even really understand this, that this is not what we're discussing when we get together and talk about terms like affirming, is its own problem. Because what it means, according to the author of the original article I found, is you can do everything right here. You can address all of the issues I pointed out here. And at the end of the day, it still may be possible, and to one degree valid or right or true, that the people that you want most desperately to reopen those doors for have absolutely no interest in walking through. That Twitter post that I made earlier this week, basically saying that I kind of long for the day when I get the opportunity, if I get the opportunity, to reintroduce some old friends and acquaintances in the United Methodist church to Jesus. That they're going to be amazed that he never cared about tradition. That's why he was always getting in trouble with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was not just inclusive. He was radically inclusive. He went to Samaria and told a Samaritan woman who was living with a man she wasn't married with and had been married multiple times to go and spread his good news to the people of Samaria. Didn't tell her to sin no more first. And he didn't tell her that she had to purify herself in any way first. He just said, no, here I am, go. In, in conversation in Bethany with the two sisters of Lazarus, with Mary and Martha, You know, Martha was unhappy with her sister because Martha was doing all the work while Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to every word he said and Jesus said what? The tradition's not important. The dogma's not important. The work is not important. You need to be listening to me. You need to be in relationship with me. And if we turn that relationship with Jesus into just another set of rules or just another set of dogma, we're missing the point. And maybe the ultimate point is the meaning of love. But you know what? I have at least one or two people, now. most of the tweets have been positive and supportive, or lashing out at the person who kind of attacked my worldview and suggested I didn't know what I was talking about. Always a mistake to do that, in my opinion. I mean, I've recorded three and a half hour podcasts on this topic. I think I've done the research. But what it leads to... When you start saying, well, you know, your point of view is completely ridiculous because Jesus does, you know, denounce gays when, you know, he, there's no single passage you can find that backs that up. In fact, there's numerous passages that I think undermine that idea. He even quoted a piece of scripture which ultimately undermined his entire idea. But what it leads to is people, you what you bring out by making a foolish, short-sighted, scripturally inept argument that you hope supports the United Methodist worldview and not my counter argument is you bring in the people who say, well, it doesn't matter anyway because there was no Jesus or Jesus isn't real or the Bible is fiction or it's all just hokum or the magic man in the sky doesn't really have any powers. All those sort of things which rub me completely wrong from the other side, places where I would reject what we might call the left side of the political spectrum as a counter to the religious right, which I equally reject is I'm stuck here in the middle saying, why'd you have to bring up all this nonsense? Because I'm not going to defend the people who are living their life right now in such a way that they have no home and no need for a home in Christian community because of the religious trauma that's been done, including the religious trauma that the person I'm referring to, somebody I don't know, some stranger who just jumped into the conversation because he didn't like my insinuation that, you know, I don't see much evidence that there's a lot of Jesus in this policy of you know committing to tradition, especially when again Jesus had such a huge track record of rejecting tradition, or at least being completely indifferent to it. So I am so much sympathetic and maybe even in league with the challenges raised by the article I can't find anymore. I turned that into a few of my own points, which I'll repeat just as hastily as I did the original article's points. You can't just set up a shingle in a new, color, new you know, color of paint. You can't just brand your way out of this problem. A rainbow flag alone is not going to do it. Stop being defensive of the past and learn from it instead. Realize that we're trying to create a new set of relationships, not a new set of rules. That means we got to find the right line between defending people versus defending policy, even if policy is scripture or dogma. We need to be very conscious of ways which we are pointlessly gendered, where we are presumptively cis and therefore you know, unintentionally hostile toward trans people without knowing we're doing it. We need to be aware and stop the bad behavior of refusing to walk a mile or two in the shoes of people whose experiences are by their very nature completely different from our own. There is a lot to learn and refusing to learn it is unacceptable. And when we accomplish all these things, if we do, and we get to the other side and maybe we even redefine the meaning of affirming in such a way that my question might end with a happier note we still need to remember that we are just going to be one piece in the puzzle of the lives of people who've had to go form community for decades in other ways and therefore they already have support structures and friendship structures that the church should not presume to replace and could at best only hope to support or maybe in our wildest wildest dreams augment that to me is what it means to answer the question of sufficiency if moving from this notion of of being welcoming to accepting to affirming is in and it's in and of itself not good enough what is on the other side of that affirming what is better than affirming what would be truly sufficient i think part of that is looking at all the things that i've talked about which frankly i'm riffing off another author you know all the way here but these are well, these are good points and maybe a good example of stopping to listen to say, you know what? I have never been a gay person who's been invited into a church that is trying its best to redefine its own traditions and be affirming. I've never had to look face to face at where that might miss the mark. And it's not possible that I ever could be described that way. This is, these are shoes I've, I don't own. If I'm going to walk a mile in them, I've got to borrow them. And you know what? The prospect and the process of borrowing those shoes and walking not just one mile, but two, or maybe more, maybe three, maybe four, that process alone might do a lot to close the gap. It might even do enough to make this particular kind of Christian community a valuable piece of the puzzle for a group of people that the church has been diminished by losing fellowship with and that the church has lost fellowship with Because the church has decided to, to our shame. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for convicting words. I was on the receiving end of convicting words this year. They weren't directed at me. I don't believe the author had any idea who I am or who I was or whether I would be reading them. Not a pastor. I'm not even a lay leader. I'm just curious enough about ways to fulfill, truly fulfill the mission of going and making disciples, of reaching people where they can be found, and not just sharing my community with them, but being open and eager for them to share their community with me. Lord, you walked the earth. You went from place to place, places where people told you not to go, places where Even when you were welcomed once in Bethany, things turned sour, and your disciples told you not to go back there, and you did anyway. Places like Samaria, where no good Orthodox practicing Jews wanted to be. Lord, you showed us how to be open to others, how to be inclusive and hospitable and filled with grace. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you've shown me I mourn, frankly, the grace I'm not seeing your church willingly share with others. And I'm hopeful that convicting words like the ones that I've read this year and conversations related to those words will help me to do even better than I've ever attempted before at living up to the notion of affirmation. In your holy name I pray, amen. What happened this morning, man I agree it was peculiar but water into wine I- all shapes and sizes Vincent. Youn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. time when every walk the earth could end with a next on walk the earth and that's just not true anymore for both inappropriate conversations and walk the earth as podcasts i'm kind of catching them as they come my game plan though for the next inappropriate conversations is to look at the concept of parental controls what are some of the things that my parents were worried about tried to shield me and my brothers and sisters from and what can i learn from kind of Rethinking Their Perspective. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.